0: We'll turn your Bibles to First Peter, please, the book of First Peter. If you need a Bible, just simply raise up your hand and uh, one of our ushers in the back will give one to you. And if you're new to the Bible, just simply go to the table of contents and you'll find a page number for First Peter and uh, easily be able to find it in your Bible. We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 4 and reading through verse 10. Follow along in your Bible as I read. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a spiritual priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the, the honor is on him who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us to understand this text, that you would help me to explain it, that you would help us to apply it to our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll pardon me, I need to take a drink after a lot of speaking this morning in Sunday school and singing. Two questions I want to ask as we begin today. Two questions. Is Jesus your stumbling block? Question number one. Or is Jesus your cornerstone? Question number two. Jesus is either the cornerstone, the foundation, the bedrock of your life, or he is a stumbling block for you. You cannot be indifferent. In answering this question. You can't sim- simply say, well, he's, he's nothing. That's it. I'm s- simply indifferent when it comes to that. I abstain from that vote. You cannot, can't, can't abstain on this vote. Either he is your foundation, your cornerstone, or he is your stumbling block. Well, with that, let's jump right into the passage. We are in First Peter. If you're new, uh, we're, we're walking through this, this book. It's actually an old letter that was written to Christians scattered throughout the known world. Uh, They were uh, were being persecuted. Uh, They were driven from their families. They were driven from their lands. And uh, and here what he's he's been doing is he's been explaining uh, simply who they are, their hope that they have in Christ, and now he's giving them this beautiful, magnificent picture of who they are. And this picture is a picture of a building. Now... Is Jesus your cornerstone or is he your stumbling block? What I want to do today is basically assume that in this room right now, that there are uh, those of you who answer, yes, he's my cornerstone. And there are those of you who would answer, no, he's my stumbling block. And those of you who might say, well, I don't know, I'm indifferent. And then I would say, well, he's your stumbling block, all right, and I'll explain that. So what I want to do is I want to take time to address each group, each one of you. So first what we're going to do is talk about those who would say, he's my cornerstone. And I want to show you in the scriptures here uh, uh, who then you are and this picture that is used of you. And then I want to address those who say, no, he's my stumbling block. And then after that, we'll conclude with some application points for The cornerstone types. All right. So, first, is Jesus your cornerstone? If he is, number one, if he is, then you are a temple. Look at verse four and five. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. And you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was the most significant building in the land. The temple was the very building in which God's fullness and presence would be most experienced. God lived Essentially, in this place, God would interact with man in this place called the temple. Now, here's the problem for these Christians they have been scattered. All right, they're no longer in Jerusalem, but they are scattered throughout what is today the region of Turkey. All right, they have, listen, no temple, they have no priest, they have no sacrificial system. They have nothing that would distinguish them as a people. They look like regular people. They dress like regular people, working regular jobs. And they actually have probably more persecution and suffering than the ordinary person in their day. And Peter here, as he's describing who they are, he uses temple language. Now as they're wandering with no temple, he says, wait a second. We must understand what or who the temple is. And in order to understand what or who the temple now is, we must understand that there is a new cornerstone for this temple. And so he begins then with Jesus. He says, if you come to him, and he calls him the living stone. Now I want to journey back about 30 some years From the time of this writing, there's Jesus sitting with his disciples. And they're talking, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Hey, who do people say I am? What are people saying about me? And so the author of this letter looks at Jesus and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Good answer. And he says, I call you, he was called Simon up until this point, I call you Petras, which means rock. I call you Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now skip forward a few months. The skies have turned dark. The world has turned against Christ. And now Jesus is being led to the cross. And there Peter, Petros, Rock, is questioned by some of his peers. Aren't you one of his followers? Don't you know him? And what comes out of Peter's words are words that he never would have dreamed would come out. I don't know the man. Never knew, never knew him. Now let's pause there. Let's skip forward. All right, Peter's now 30 years older. All right, his hair is gray. He's writing this letter. I want you to note something. As he's writing this, he calls not himself the rock. He doesn't refer at all to himself. But he says, as you come to Him, the living stone. Jesus, for Peter, is the rock. The church was not built on Peter the person. Peter would be the first to tell you that. Look, I ran. I crumbled. I, as as a person, am a crumbling stone. I'm nothing. No, the rock that the church was being built on was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter's saying is is as you come to Him, no mention of Himself, the stone, but not just the stone, but he says the living stone. Well, what does that mean? Oh, how the resurrection changed things for Peter 30-some years before. As Jesus rose from the dead, this weak Peter was then Emboldened in his own faith. As Jesus rose from the dead, he might remember that moment where Jesus was on the shore cooking some food. And there he ate with him. He might remember that moment when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? The emotions that would have welled up in Peter's throat in that moment as he knew that days before he denied him. But friends, the resurrection changed everything for Peter and God used him in a powerful way. He says Jesus is not just the stone, but he is the living stone. As you come to him, then he says, you, now he turns to you, he says you are like living stones. Now we've already seen how we were a pile of rubble. All right, We were trash stones. We were rocks that were unshaped and crumbling and unusable. And if you would have put us into the building, we would have just completely destroyed the building because the wall would have collapsed because I would have crumbled. But no, God has reshaped these stones. He has given these stones new life and new birth, hope now and hope into the future, hope of resurrection with Christ. And he says, so now you are like living stones as well. And you are being built up, he says, into this, this this building. Now let me explain it this way. We as a church are praying for a building. Alright? We would love to get a hold of some old cathedral in Baltimore and move it into this neighborhood. <laughs> We're praying for a building. But friends, a building is a mere tool. A building is not the temple of God. A building is not where God's glory is seen. Now in the Old Testament, God's glory was seen in the temple. Today, most religions, you could say their glory is seen in their edifices or in their, uh, their cathedrals or in their temples or in their synagogues. The Roman Catholic Church even 500 years ago got this really wrong when they began selling indulgences. If you know anything about Reformation history and the medieval history, began selling indulgences so that they could raise money to build massive cathedrals because they believed That the glory of God is to be seen in a building made by man's hands. Where is God's glory seen? Friends, in the new covenant, it's not in a building. It's in the people. This is what this means. All right, so right now we're meeting in an elk lodge. What it means is in this elk lodge, all right, with with these drapes over here, look at those things. We got some balloons over in the corner there, a couple light lights out. Mr. President? That guy? All right, in this elk lodge, as living stones gather for corporate worship, it is possible that God's glory could be on display in this place in a far greater way than. a stone cathedral that has been emptied of the living stones and is now a mere museum. This is what he's saying. We, the people, are the building, the temple, the living stones. And he says in verse 5, also, you are being built, which means that this building's not finished yet. It means that this building is constantly being, every time someone someone is converted, every time someone comes to Christ, they are being now added into this building. So as you minister to your lost friends, and as you help them to understand Christianity, and as they become a follower of Christ, well now you're helping them become part of this Building that is growing and that will not be finished until the last man or woman is converted and Jesus comes back. So, if if you can say this morning that Jesus is your cornerstone, uh, then you must understand that you're part of this building, this temple. Secondly, this building that you're part of is indestructible. You're part of an edifice that will never be destroyed. Look at verse 6 before we read it. Well, let me go ahead and read it first. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. Now, he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, why does Peter quote Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16? Well, if you were to read Isaiah chapter 28, what you would find is that Isaiah there is confronting the arrogance of those who believed that the temple in Jerusalem was indestructible. They believed that that this that this land and this temple would never be destroyed. How could it? Because we have the temple. And there at the temple, in this temple, this is where the presence of God is fully experienced. So then how could our land be destroyed? We're indestructible. And and Isaiah is saying, no, listen, there is a new cornerstone that is being laid in Zion. There is a new building that is being built. And while Babylon is about to come in, and the empire is about to destroy what you have made, while in a few years from Peter's writing, Rome is about to destroy uh, what they remade, the new temple. While these buildings are destroyed, he's saying that you are part of this building with this cornerstone, and whoever's part of this, whoever believes in Jesus, will never be put to shame, will never be destroyed, is indestructible. Now, what does the cornerstone have to do with this? How does understanding Jesus as the cornerstone make us then, as a building, indestructible? When I was in college, I uh, spent the summers working for a construction crew that built houses. And I rem- remember the first time I went to a, a new house. We I helped them load up the van at the house they had just finished building. Building. I jumped into the van, and we drove to the new the new lot. And as we arrived on the lot, there was a foundation that had already been laid in the ground. And so then we took our our, uh, two by tens and drilled them into the the foundation and began to build the house. One thing that didn't occur to me until a couple years into being part of this crew was how we take advantage of this foundation. How we, 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 we just simply assume that the foundation is going to be there and we begin to build upon it. Now listen, if the foundation that was, that was laid in this rocky soil was in any way off, not square, not completely level, not solid, the entire structure we built on top of it would have fallen over. And then when I realized that, at the time I was wanting to build my own house. That was my dream back then. I don't know why. I never would try to do that. But at the time I thought, okay, so when I build my house, I'm going to have a professional lay the foundation because I don't want to mess that up. The cornerstone in... Solomon's temple was the foundation, essentially, of the building. It was a large stone that had to have a perfect square cut because every single wall in the temple would be built off of that cornerstone. If the cornerstone was off, the whole building would be off. What he's saying is the quality of the building is entirely dependent upon the cornerstone. The quality of the building is entirely dependent upon the quality of the foundation on which the building's built. And so, what is this cornerstone? Well, this cornerstone has seen the worst this world can throw. This cornerstone went through the worst that Rome could do to it. As Rome destroyed this cornerstone, and Jesus was taken to the cross, and He was bloodied, and He was beaten, and He was nailed to the cross, and He breathed His last. The builders rejected this this rock. Jesus went through this rejection and came out the other side alive. Resurrected from the dead. And so what we see then is that this cornerstone can face every single storm that will come our way, including the storm of death. Storms of marital problems. Storms of falling out of love. Storms of money problems. Storms of job loss. Storms of a boyfriend breaking up with you. Storms of uh, children that die. Storms of mental illness. Storms of even death. The storm Will blow and will beat on this house, but it will not fall because it is founded upon a rock. Are you part of this edifice? Are you part of this building? Are you a living stone believing in the cornerstone? Is he your foundation? Or are you part of a building that will be put to shame? Are you a stone that will crumble? Maybe the storms of life won't cause you to crumble, but can you face the storm of death without crumbling? You see, if Jesus is not your cornerstone, then he's your stumbling block. So let's, let's, let's go there now. Let's, let's talk about those, and uh, you might be one of them who would say that Jesus is not my cornerstone. Well, if he's not your cornerstone, he's your stumbling block. Number one, he's your stumbling block because he offends you. Verse 7 and 8, it says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now this is a clear reference here again to the crucifixion. So Jesus came into the world. The world was made through him. The world was made for him, but the world knew him not. And the world put him on the cross. They rejected him. And what this is saying is, is in this rejection of him, in this disobedience, they were destined to do so as they rejected him. In that very rejection, God was bringing about his purposes for sinners that he is saving. Meaning, God was not out of control as the world was rejecting him, and God is not out of control today as the world rejects him. If he's not your stumbling block, then, or if he is your stumbling block, then he offends you. Here's what he's saying here. What this means is that, again, we cannot uh, just simply be indifferent when it comes to Jesus. To say, I don't believe in Jesus is not an amoral decision. We cannot hear of who Jesus says we are and who Jesus says He is and remain indifferent. You either accept Him or you reject Him. R.C. Sproul, a theologian in Orlando, he was speaking to a group of atheists. And uh, he he, uh, began his speech to these atheists by saying, let me start by by saying this. Your problem, the reason you don't believe in God, your problem is not an intellectual problem. And R.C. Sproul said everybody's eyes were just like huge. Like, what do you mean it's not an intellectual problem? He said your problem is a moral problem. You hate God. Wow. He wasn't popular that day. (laughs) Needless to say. But he makes a point. Our rejection of God is hatred of God. Our rejection of Christ to say that He means nothing to my life is hatred of Christ. It's putting Him aside. It is rejecting Him. Do you think that if Jesus came to Baltimore today that He would be embraced? Listen. If Jesus was in the Inner Harbor this afternoon, all right, we 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 hear about it. We go down there, and he's like sitting in the little amphitheater there, and he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think Baltimore would accept him and embrace him, friends? He would be rejected. He would be rejected. Humans love to talk about God. Humans even sometimes enjoy talking about God. But to come face to face with God is horrifying. To come face to face with God either demands that you fall on your knees and embrace Him as Lord or that you reject Him and kill Him. He calls a lazy husband to serve his wife. And lazy husband rejects. He calls a single woman to stop trying to find her security in multiple men, yet she rejects and continues to find spiritual significance in humans. He calls a man working at his job, a job that is boring, excruciatingly boring, to the point where the man thinks he's going insane half the time. He calls this man to do all things as unto the glory of God. And part of that means putting Facebook away and being a good employee. And the man rejects him. In many churches, entire passages have to be ignored, rejected, not read. Because a surface, cursory reading of these passages is absolutely offensive and what's more is jesus calls you to trust him and you reject him trusting in yourself not only is this an intellectual rejection but this is disobedience that's what he goes on to say he says they disobey him those who stumble stumbling is sin stumbling is disobedience they're stumbling they're sinning they're disobeying not just simply moral codes This isn't simply saying, oh, I don't like the moral code of Christianity. No, primarily, he says, what they're stumbling over is the gospel. They disobey the gospel. They are told to believe and to trust, and they don't. Oh, the greatest offense, the greatest sin we can commit is to disobey the call to trust God. The general call goes to all that God is a good and holy creator, that we have broken and sinned against Him, that we are in need of a Savior, that Jesus is the sufficient Savior, that His blood is enough to save you, that the judgment for your sin was placed on Him, that He rose from the dead, and if you trust in Him, then you will have resurrection. You are demanded, every one of you, to believe that. And the greatest sin you can commit today is to disobey the Gospel. So is Jesus your cornerstone? Or is Jesus your stumbling block? Well, let's turn here. Let's, let's talk about what it means now. If Jesus is indeed our cornerstone, and we are indeed living stones, part of this building, Peter then goes on and he beautifully uh, explains who we are. Look at verse Look at verse verse nine. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Four realities, for the building that we get from this, these verses right there. Number one, you are God's temple all week long. All week long, you are God's building. You are the church. Where is the division now between the temple and society? Well, it's invisible. It's invisible. You see, the temple has infiltrated society. Every week, you go into some of the darkest places of finance. You go into some of the darkest places of entertainment. You go into some of the darkest uh, neighborhoods or homes, the darkest jobs, the darkest problems. And the temple has infiltrated society. We, wherever we go, are this building all week long. Now. When we think of church, unfortunately, we often think of this hour and a half on Sunday mornings. Do you realize that this time that we spend right now is 1.6% of your entire week? 1.6%. The reality of being living stones, the reality of being the church means that it cannot just simply consist of 1.6% of your week. The real question is, what do you do with 98.4% of your week? What do you do with the rest of it? Friends, wherever you go throughout the week, homes, dinners, your roommates hanging out, 6.30 a.m., waiting for the bus to go to work, Hitting that fourth floor elevator button again—this mundane, just whatever your life looks like—you are the, the 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 building, the temple of God. Meaning, no longer does your coworker have to go to Rome for a spiritual experience. Your coworker simply needs to go to his cubicle, and sit next to you, and hear the word of faith, and see the deeds of faith. Number one, all week long, you are God's temple. Number two, all week long, you are priests. You say, I'm not a priest. I don't wear a collar. There's no way I'm, no, all week long. Look, he says, a royal priesthood a royal priesthood. All week long, you are priests. Now, what did priests do in the Old Testament? They built bridges, essentially, between God and man. They would serve uh, the ordinary man so that that person might benefit from the ministry of God. They had then direct access to God. Now, Jesus, the Bible says, is our high priest, which means that He is the priest that intercesses, that mediates between us and, uh, uh, us and the Father. But friends, you are called in the Bible priests. One of the greatest doctrines that the Reformation recovered was what's called the, pri- the priesthood of the believer. Of every, every, I am not a priest. You are a priest. Well, I am a priest, but I'm not a priest over you. All right. We all are priests. Well, what does this mean? Well, on one hand, it means that you have direct access to God, and I think everybody gets that. At least I hope you do. But it also means this that you build bridges to society. A priest ministers the grace of God to the society and the people around him. A priest... uh, um, Or I'm sorry, my, my role as pastor is not priest. My role as pastor is to equip priests to go and do your job as priests all week long. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. To go out into Baltimore. To do the priestly work in all of the city. Praying for kids. One-on-one discipleship. Sharing with someone your life. Sharing the Gospel with a coworker, worker evangel- Evangelism. Touching every part of this strange world and saying this is God's world. And this is the world that God is recreating. And that Christ is coming back to to completely restore. One example of, of this kind of work just in our own congregation, there was a, a, a single man uh, who was speaking with a married man. And the married man was discussing some problems within the family. Wife and, and kids. The single man... Began to minister to the married man, and instruct the married man on family life, on married life. Single man had never been married, and single man blessed the family man. What do we? How do we? How do do we understand that? God has equipped you to serve the needs of the body. God has equipped you as ministers and as priests. All week long, you are priests. Number three, all week long, then you worship. What do priests do? Well, priests offer sacrifices in the Old Testament. Bloody sacrifices were laid on the altar by the priests as acts of worship. And what he says is now, as priests, we offer not bloody sacrifices, but he says in verse uh, verse five, he says we offer spiritual sacrifices. What are these spiritual sacrifices that we are to be offering all week long? In verse 10, or verse 9, rather, he says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What are these spiritual sacrifices? They are proclaiming the excellencies of God. They are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light, and we are to do that all week long. Worship is not just something we do for 90 minutes on Sundays. Or even worse, 30 minutes or 40 minutes during the music time. That's not the extent of our worship. Worship is something that we do throughout our entire week. Six days a week, privately, we are proclaiming the excellencies of God in our devotional times. Publicly, as we interact with those around us, we are proclaiming the excellencies of God and making much of Him through word and deed. And what do we do on the Lord's Day? Well, we simply come together and corporately do what we've been doing all week long. And we gather for a corporate expression of worship. Well, lastly, all week long, you are God's people. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people. Now, this is a word that he's stealing straight out of Hosea. We know the story of Hosea. I've referenced it a couple times lately. Here's Hosea. He marries Gomer, a prostitute. Gomer gives him three children. By the time the third child comes along, things have gone from bad to worse, and Gomer names the child Loami, which means, not mine. You are not my people. And then God then turns, and He uses that for Israel at the time, and He says, look, you are not My people, you are Loami. I know nothing of you. You are living in darkness. You are in chains in a dungeon. And he says that you were once, verse 10, Loami, not a people, but now you are God's people. Charles Wesley said it best in his hymn, And Can It Be, he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed Thee. Do you know this transformation? Transformation. Do you know this calling? Do you know this building and this people? Are you part of this race of God's redeemed? Or are you stumbling over Jesus? Is Jesus your foundation who will keep you until the end? Or is Jesus your enemy who one day you will deal with face to face? Are you a missionary or are you a mission field? Friends, this Jesus is an inviting God. And he is inviting you now to be part of this building, to be part of this family, to be reborn, to be made new, to be changed. Is this you? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we could gather today and we ask that, that, uh, uh, that this challenge that we received from Peter, uh, are we uh, part of this building? Is Jesus our cornerstone or is He our stumbling block? God, I pray that this would speak to us at a deep level. For those who are struggling this morning with unbelief, God, help them in their unbelief and give them faith. Let them see Christ Let them taste and see that He is good. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.